It's time now for the complete story, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now here's the BRN father and son team, Dick and Rich Bot, with today's complete story. Now today's complete story seems like we're kind of winding up a little bit on some of these things, but it gets tighter and tighter and tighter. Those folks who have been watching the hearings, the Senate hearings on um, the new Supreme Court Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett. I don't know if you've been watching him as I have from the standpoint of being a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian who is proud to be an American and very much involved. I'm going to be coming to my home area from out of town in order to vote. Voting is one of the things that I think is important to do if you're a citizen and if you're an adult, for goodness sake, pull your socks up and do your part as an American citizen. So there were all of these things. Now, folks, that, uh, well, anyway, Rich, well, what do you think? <laughs> well, I agree. It's vitally important to vote. And these hearings have been riveting to see the clash of worldviews and yeah. the clash of the view of the Constitution and how important it is to protect and, you know, people can read this and read that, or if you watch television much, it just makes me dizzy and makes me a little angry, frankly. People talking over each other, and they just seem to be grinding out conversation in order to create controversy. So I don't know, but there are three things for me as a Christian, as an American, that are very, very important. One is the issue of life. Uh, those who think that an unborn baby is not a human being, is not a human life, is not from the moment of conception with its own life genetic DNA, then you're just simply not caring enough to really study it or look at it or think about it. You probably have something else on your mind. But then the next thing is education. My word, folks, I've had some people say, well, the thing about you pro-life people is once the baby is born, what happens next? Because if he doesn't have a decent school to go to, if he doesn't have anyone to encourage him to read, then uh, when I say him, I mean him or her naturally. And to dream and to really think I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be like this or I'm going to be like that. Or I'm going to, I'm you know, they used to say I'm going to be like my dad. And then the little girl would say I'm going to be like my mother. But if you don't have a dream, if that child doesn't go to a school and has a life around them that gives them a dream, well, that's a terrible lack. I was thinking about myself. I was in the sixth grade in grade school, and the teacher, uh, let's see, her name I think was Miss Olson. We had to have a little speech in the sixth grade to talk about what we wanted to become. And she gave us a choice of three subjects. You had to choose three. Anyway, I chose radio as one of the things I wanted. to. That was my dream, even in the sixth grade. So I had that dream, and I did a little speech on it. And then she gave me an A. What an encouragement that was. And then there were other people in my life, my parents, but also the people at church and the others around in my life. Now, what if I didn't have those? And you see, folks, it can be a grandmother. It can be a neighbor. It can be somebody that cares about that child and uh, talks to them and that sort of thing. So school is so important. And you know as well as I know 
that the public schools today are uh, at best pretty messed up. And by school choice, it'll make them competitive. Every part of a city will have a good school to go to because if they're not a good school, they'll die. Parents don't want their children in a failing school. So first of all, it's life itself and then schooling and education to build a dream. And then, of course, economic opportunity. Those are the three things that are on my mind. And believe me, I remember the time when it started to dawn on me that everything in my life was made in China. I remember when it started to dawn on me going into a hardware store and finding the hammers, a pair of pliers, or, or whatever else I was there for was made in China. It was no longer made in the United States of America. If we don't have manufacturing, then people don't have jobs. And if they don't have jobs, they can't earn money. And if they can't earn money, they cannot buy things. They cannot buy a home. They cannot buy things. And so economic recovery in America is all about what Donald Trump has said, he promised, and he kept his promise. And these things are so important to me. Remember, it's life. It starts there, folks. If the child is not alive because somebody else chose that the child's life was not important enough to allow to continue living, well, that's a terrible thing. What a culture. But you know what? Once the child is born, it can be adopted. Why should adoption take $20,000, for heaven's sake, for a couple of parents to adopt a child that needs a home and needs a home to love them and that sort of thing? So there's a lot of changes. There's a lot we've got to get into right here. I, I was doing a little research. If this doesn't sound strange in today's culture, but President Abraham Lincoln said, but for the Bible, we could not know right from wrong. All things most desirable for man's welfare are to be found portrayed in it. Isn't that something? Now, Rich, what is it that Senator Dianne Feinstein challenged the uh, Supreme Court nominee saying that she had too much faith? She had too much faith. She was taking her faith too seriously, too literally, and it seemed to be affecting who she is. What, tell me what that was. Right, and that relates back to 2017 when they were nominating her and confirming her to be on the uh, the appeals court. But what it was was Dianne Feinstein said that the dogma— The Democrat—wait a minute, Rich. The Democrat senator, senator from California. From California, that's right. Dianne Feinstein confronted her and said, the dogma lives loudly in you. Yeah. And what she's it's, talking about is her Christian faith. That's right. The dogma of her faith lives loudly within you. And that was to criticize her. As if that to was, say, you shouldn't sit on the bench because you actually believe he, your faith. <laughs> and when you put that in, in the light of what Abraham Lincoln said, listen to what George Washington said, folks. It is impossible to rightly govern without God and the Bible. Now, I didn't say that. He said it. Now, Daniel Webster, the Webster Dictionary, he said, whatever makes men good Christians makes them good citizens. Well, could a person dispute that? Could you say a good Christian? I'm not talking about some flunky guy 
I'm not talking about somebody who really likes, like Joe Biden likes to talk about his Catholic uh, practice and all that sort of thing when it's election time. Uh, I'm talking about a, 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 a Christian. He said, whatever makes men good Christians makes them good citizens. Daniel Webster. Here is President John Quincy Adams. And he said, it is essential, my son, that you should form and adopt certain rules or principles. It is in the Bible. You must learn them. And from the Bible, how to practice them. John Quincy Adams. So you see what a far cry we have come from practicing the principles that were in America's founding fathers' hearts and willing to stand up and be part of the debate. And uh, what would you say now, Rich, because we want to get into the next feature of this broadcast. All right. Well, Henry Hyde is a hero of ours. And, of course, he is well known for the Hyde Amendment. Mm -hmm. And that is a legislative provision that bans the use of taxpayer funds to pay for abortion. He came to the Congress in 1975, and this first passed the Hyde Amendment in 1976. So his second year in office as a uh, representative. And it passed with a 312 to 93 vote, overwhelming majority. And the Hyde Amendment simply said what? It says that you can't use taxpayer funds to pay for abortion. And prior to it going into effect, an estimated 300,000 abortions were performed yeah. each year using taxpayer funds. All right, now listen, because we got to get into this. Well, let because, me— now, No, no, wait a minute now. Henry Hyde, the Hyde Amendment, this is in the Democrat platform, that this is one of the things they are pledged— to uh, repeal, isn't it? Yes, the Democrat platform now, for the first time, the party has an explicit call to repeal the Hyde Amendment in its platform. That's what defines the Democrat position, is to repeal the ban on taxpayer funding of abortion. And when I saw the Supreme Court nominee being challenged over and over and over again on this subject, I thought, oh, I want our listening audience to hear the speech Mm -hmm. that Congressman Henry Hyde brought before the House of Representatives in 1996. Folks, listen to this carefully now. Let me me set this up, because this is very key. The Republican Congress first passed the partial birth abortion ban in 1995, and Bill Clinton vetoed it. And they passed it again in 1997, and Bill Clinton vetoed it. This is to ban partial birth abortion. Uh, What we're going to hear, it, it wasn't until 2003 when George Bush was in office that he signed the legislation. Then it was contested at the Supreme Court, and yeah. in a Supreme Court decision five to four, it was it was ruled constitutional. Yeah. It did not conflict with the Constitution. Right, listen, However, the get... person that wrote the dissent was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, she right? no, said that would have been unconstitutional. I want the people to hear the speech that he brought, Congressman Henry Hyde, before the House of Representatives. Here it is. Mr. Speaker, I yield the balance of my time to the gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Hyde, Chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. The gentleman from Illinois is recognized for 15 minutes. 
I ask unanimous consent to revise and extend my remarks. Without objection. And I also beg the indulgence of my colleagues not to ask me to yield because I cannot and will not, and I would appreciate the courtesy. I also want to say briefly that those who have charged us with politics, invidious politics, for delaying this ought to understand that Americans can't believe this practice exists. And it has taken months to educate the American people. And it'll take many more months to educate them as to the nature and extent of this horrible practice. That is one reason it has taken so long. Now, the law exists to protect the weak from the strong. That's why we're here. Mr. Speaker, in his classic novel, Crime and Punishment, <clears throat> Dostoevsky has his murderous protagonist Raskolnikov say, man can get used to anything, the beast. That we're even debating this issue, that we have to argue about the legality of an abortionist plunging a pair of scissors into the back of the tiny neck of a little child whose trunk arms and legs have already been delivered, and then suctioning out his brains only confirms Dostoevsky's harsh truth. <clears throat> we were told in committee by an attending nurse that the little arms and legs stop flailing and suddenly stiffen as the scissors is plunged in. People who say, I feel your pain, aren't referring to that little infant. What kind of people have we become that this procedure is even a matter for debate? Can't we draw the line at torture and baby torture at that if we can't, what's become of us? We're all incensed about ethnic cleansing. What about infant cleansing? There's no argument here about when human life begins. The child who's destroyed is unmistakably alive, unmistakably human, and unmistakably brutally destroyed. The justification for abortion has always been the claim that a woman can do with her own body what she will. Well, if you still believe that this four-fifths delivered little baby is a part of the woman's body, then I'm afraid your ignorance is invincible. I finally figured out why supporters of abortion on demand fight this infanticide ban tooth and claw. Because for the first time since Roe v. Wade, the focus is on the baby. Not the mother, not the woman, but the baby and the harm that abortion inflicts on an unborn child, or in this instance, a four-fifths born child. That child, whom the advocates of abortion on demand have done everything in their power to make us ignore, to dehumanize, is as much a bearer of human rights as any member of this House. To deny those rights is more than a betrayal of a powerless individual. It betrays the central promise of America that there is in this land justice for all. The supporters of abortion on demand have exercised an amazing capacity for self-deception by detaching themselves from any sympathy whatsoever for the unborn child, and in doing so, they separate themselves from the instinct for justice that gave birth to this country. There's no moral, nor for that matter, medical justification for this barbaric assault on a partially born infant. Dr. Pamela Smith, Director of Medical Education in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Chicago's Mount Sinai Hospital, testified to that, as have many other doctors. C. Everett Koop, Dr. C. Everett Koop, the last credible Surgeon General that we had, 
was interviewed by the American Medical Association. In so doing, he cited several cases in which women were told these procedures were necessary to preserve their health and their ability to have future pregnancies. How would you characterize the claims being made in favor of the medical need for this procedure? Quoting Dr. Koop, question, in your practice as a pediatric surgeon, have you ever treated children with any of the disabilities cited in this debate? Have you operated on children born with organs outside of their bodies? Answer, oh yes, indeed. I've done that many times. The prognosis is good. There are two common ways that children are born with organs outside of their body. One is an omphalocele, where the organs are out but still contained in the sac composed of the tissues of the umbilical cord. I have been repairing these since 1946. The other is when the sac is ruptured. That makes it a little more difficult. I don't know what the national mortality would be, but certainly more than half of those babies survive after surgery. Every once in a while you have other peculiar things such as the chest being wide open and the heart being outside the body. And I have even replaced hearts back in the body and had children grow to adulthood. Question, and live normal lives? Answer, living normal lives. In fact, the first child I ever did with a huge omphalocele, much bigger than her head, went on to develop well and become the head nurse in my intensive care unit many years later. The abortionist who is a principal perpetrator of these atrocities, Dr. Martin Haskell, has conceded that at least 80% of the partial birth abortions he performs are entirely elective. 80% are elective. And he admits to over 1,000 of these abortions, and that's some years ago. We're told about some extreme cases of malformed babies as though life is only for the privileged, the planned, and the perfect. Dr. James McMahon, the late Dr. James McMahon, listed nine such abortions he performed because the baby had a cleft lip. Many other physicians who care both about the mother and the unborn child have made it clear this is never a medical necessity, but it is a convenience for the abortionist. It's a convenience for those who choose to abort late in pregnancy when it becomes difficult to dismember the unborn child in the womb. If there is one consistent commitment that has su survived the twists and the turns of policy during this administration, it is an unshakable commitment to a legal regime of abortion on demand. Nothing is or will be done to make abortion rare. No legislative or regulatory act will be allowed to impede the most permissive abortion license in the democratic world. In his memoirs, Dwight Eisenhower wrote about the loss of 1.2 million lives in World War II. And he said the loss of lives that might have otherwise been creatively lived scars the mind of the civilized world. Mr. Speaker, our souls have been scarred by one and a half million abortions every year in this country. Our souls have so much scar tissue, there isn't room for any more. And say, what do we mean by human dignity? If we subject innocent children to brutal execution when they're almost born, we all hope and pray for death with dignity. Tell me what's dignified about a death caused by having a scissor stabbed into your neck so your brains can be sucked out. We've had long and bitter debates in this house about assault weapons.
Those scissors and that suction machine are assault weapons worse than any AK-47. You might miss with an AK-47. The doctor never misses with his assault weapon, I can assure you. It isn't just the babies that are dying for the lethal sin of being unwanted or being handicapped or malformed. We are dying, and not from the darkness, but from the cold, the coldness of self-brutalization that chills our sensibilities, deadens our conscience, and allows us to think of this unspeakable act as an act of compassion. If you vote to uphold this veto, if you vote to maintain the legality of a procedure that is revolting even to the most hardened heart, then please don't ever use the word compassion again. A word about anesthesia. Advocates of partial birth abortions tried to tell us the baby doesn't feel pain. The mother's anesthesia is transmitted to the baby. We took testimony from five of the country's top anesthesiologists and they said this impossible. That result would take so much anesthesia, it would kill the mother. By upholding this tragic veto, you join the network of complicity in supporting what is essentially a crime against humanity. For that little almost born infant struggling to live is a member of the human family. And partial birth abortion is a lethal assault against the very idea of human rights and destroys, along with a defenseless little baby, the moral foundation of our democracy, because democracy isn't, after all, a mere process. It assigns fundamental rights and values to each human being, the first of which is the inalienable right to life. One of the great errors of modern politics is our foolish attempt to separate our private consciences from our public acts, and it can't be done. At the end of the 20th century, is the crowning achievement of our democracy to treat the weak, the powerless, the unwanted as things to be disposed of. If so, we haven't elevated justice. We've disgraced it. This isn't a debate about sectarian religious doctrine nor about policy options. This is a debate about our understanding of human dignity. What does it mean to be human? Our moment in history is marked by a mortal conflict between a culture of death and a culture of life. And today, here and now, we must choose sides. I'm not the least embarrassed to say that I believe one day each of us will be called upon to render an account for what we've done and, maybe more importantly, what we failed to do in our lifetime. And while I believe in a merciful God, I believe in a just God. And I would be terrified at the thought of having to explain at the final judgment, why I stood unmoved while Herod's slaughter of the innocents was being reenacted here in my own country. This debate has been about an unspeakable horror. And while the details are graphic and grisly, it has been helpful for all of us to recognize the full brutality of what goes on in America's abortuaries day in and day out, week after week, year after year. We're not talking about abstractions here. We're talking about life and death at their most elemental. And we ought to face the truth of what we oppose or support, stripped of all euphemisms. And the queen of all euphemisms is choice, as though you're choosing vanilla and chocolate instead of a dead baby or a live baby. Now, we've talked so much about the grotesque. Permit me a word about beauty. We all have our own images of the beautiful, the face of a loved one, 
a dawn, a sunset, the evening star. I believe nothing in this world of wonders is more beautiful than the innocence of a child. Do you know what a child is? She's an opportunity for love, and a handicapped child is an even greater opportunity for love. Mr. Speaker, we risk our souls, we risk our humanity when we trifle with that innocence or demean it or brutalize it. We need more caring and less killing. Let the innocence of the unborn have the last word in this debate. Let their innocence appeal to what President Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. Let our votes prove Raskolnikov is wrong. There is something we will never get used to. Make it clear once again, there is justice for all, even for the tiniest, most defenseless in this our land. And I yield back the balance Mr. of my Chairman, time. All right, folks. All right, folks. That was a speech that was given by Congressman Henry Hyde on the floor of the House of Representatives. And I wanted you to hear it in the light of what we're battling with today. Right. Now, listen, the issue was about the baby. And we're going to be talking about the other aspects of this. But listen to this little song. It's about the baby. Rich, give us give us the number. 1-800-345-2621. We'd love to hear from you. 1-800-345-2621. This is Dick Bott with my son, Rich, with another chapter of The Complete Story just for you folks. We'll see you later.